Hello. Thanks again for returning for another episode of Freaky Friday. I'm your host, Jacob Pasterfield. Once again, sitting here at Frequency Winery in beautiful Kelowna, BC, uh, in the Okanagan Valley. And uh, I am so grateful to be here in this area, in this beautiful slice of heaven that is the uh, Okanagan Valley. Pretty much every day when I have an opportunity to drive through and on my way to work here, um, I come over this mountain and there's this beautiful view of where the the lake and the hills roll on and on and on. You can kind of see and see for a real long time and it's one of my favorite views in the world and I'm really humbled and, and I think really blessed to be able to be doing what I do here. So I'm also very thankful that you folks are joining for the ride and and uh, today we've got a fun topic. We're going to talk about the solar plexus chakra. So we're going to go over a lot of things. I've got a lot of information to convey, so I'll probably split this episode into two different segments and uh, allow you folks a little bit of ease in digesting some of the information. You can kind of take it in stride and take a little bit of a, a break in between if you so choose. So the solar plexus chakra, also called the Manipura chakra, welcome to the seat of the ego. Um, before we begin, I want to ask a question. Who are you? No, really. Who are you? You're the only one who gets to decide the answer to that question. And it is your sovereign right to be whoever that person is. You may have a body, but your body is not yourself. So the self is a really interesting topic. And uh, one of my biggest influences in life, I'd say, is Carl Jung. Carl Jung is this badass psychologist who uh, was one of Sigmund Freud's contemporaries. And although they agreed in many avenues, they definitely disagreed in many others. Um, one of Carl Jung's most important contributions to the body of psychological work is his concept of what is called individuation. So individuation is the process of bringing awareness to yourself. And usually when people try and define themselves, we're usually doing so in some pursuit of perfection. And this is a really distorted um, search for the self because perfection is never really something that can be fully attained, especially within our bodies. Um, Carl Jung even said that chasing uh, perfection is impossible because it's like chasing the wind. So what we should strive for is for completion and wholeness. We want to bring all parts of ourself brought into harmony with a healthy environment. This will happen naturally and Individuation is the process of becoming all of the symbolic manifestations of the archetypes and gaining knowledge to the patterns of one's life. So basically, this is a reflection of the paths we can take to know ourselves. And throughout these different paths and these different processes we can walk down, um, they reflect historically stories and different experiences that other people have had. And I think that this is really beautiful because this really illuminates that no matter what you're going through, you're never really alone in what you're dealing with. 
although there may never have been a circumstance exactly like what you're dealing with, it's really nice to know that throughout history, everyone has gone through very similar processes in understanding and developing the self. So the solar plexus is kind of the center of our being. And when we talk about centering, it really is bridging between the lower animalistic drives of the human nature and the higher states of divinity that we can reach for and that we can aim for. And our solar plexus is kind of right in the middle of our body. And it's a really interesting concept. And this is what people speak about when we speak about someone who is centered. And finding that centering is a very important part of regulating stress and regulating trauma that we go through within our lives. So the solar plexus chakra is really about balancing the polarities of our being. Um, the solar plexus chakra is considered the seat of our personal power, and this is where our concept of ego stems from. Mythologically, it's represented as the inner sun or the inner light, and it is uh, the the pivotal central point of the world within. So <clears throat> when we are balancing our polarity, there's this concept that really comes to mind. And if you folks are familiar with the tarot, one of the cards that to me really represents um, a very balanced solar plexus chakra is the strength card. And on this card, there's a depiction of the maiden and she is hanging out with a lion. And through her nurturing, compassionate nature, she has tamed the inner beast. And the lion is a representation of the ferocious and um, powerful side of our animalistic nature. And it's something that is a part of us and a very integral part of us, but it's something that beckons to be tamed and to be nurtured. And usually with something as scary as a lion, it's hard to think that we could ever be able to tame something. But the strength card is about drawing from the inner resources of strength within and allowing that to tame the wild beast of our animalistic representation. So the inner drives in the lion can represent the repressed desires that we go through in our lives, the parts of ourself that we don't listen to. And in doing so, they become forced into our subconscious and part of ourself always needs to recognize those inner desires. There's an alchemical symbol and it's called, it's when the green lion devours the sun. And so if the lion is our inner animal and the sun is our inner self, it's kind of about those circumstances where we put ourselves in scenarios where our inner desires come out They've been neglected and repressed so fiercely that they bubble up and they boil up inside of us and they find a way to come out, but it kind of comes out sideways. So usually um, I associate this concept to times when people overindulge and they, you know, call that person they're not supposed to be calling or they will hold hands with toxic scenarios because there's an inner dialogue that's not being met, that's being ignored. And our inner desires and our honest needs are something that are a very integral part of our being. And usually these inner drives and these inner desires reflect some of the less desirable qualities of who and what we are. And um, in a lot of psychological work, um, the subconscious drives aren't something that go away if you're being ignored. 
So a uh, good metaphor for this is if you're thirsty, you can pretend you're not thirsty forever, but the only thing that's going to actually satiate that thirst is by having a glass of water. You can't ignore it and ignore it and ignore it until because eventually your subconscious and inner self will find a way to express and represent those unmet desires. So this leads us into the persona. So the persona is the mask that we wear to other people, the masks that we adorn to fit into the social the social sorry, the social structures around us and it's reflective of these social norms, it's reflective of our upbringing, our moral compass, and our civilization. And these masks are the d disguises that we wear so we can fit and blend in in scenarios where we don't think we are fitting in as much as we'd like to. So the concept of the persona and the masks we wear is something that comes up a lot in psychology, and I think it's a really interesting topic because we tend to bend and to um, shape ourselves to fit into scenarios that we don't necessarily fit in if we're being our truest and authentic self, but we sometimes don't have the opportunity to escape these scenarios, so we have to kind of, you know, squeeze ourselves into these boxes, and the persona is the reflection of that kind of uh, distance in between our authenticity and what's expected of us. So it becomes really difficult because we adorn and we wear these masks for so long, we forget that these masks are not who we are. It's just uh, a something we wear. It's a facet of the totality of who you are. So sometimes it's really painful to have to take upon these roles to fit into these scenarios. And as eventually, if we do them for so long, it becomes really difficult to take that mask off. We develop these connection to these identities and these personalities so much that they become harmful and they become outside of who and what we really are. And it becomes really hard sometimes to take these, these masks off because we, we wear these masks and we create these masks so that we can fit in. And it's really difficult because we're sometimes forced to fit into scenarios that are very harmful for us. We're consistently bombarded with thoughts and images, noise and color pollution that kind of knock us off of our sense of self and that internal center that we're trying to operate from. Our internal drives become restless. Sorry, when this happens, our internal drives in these parts of ourselves that are being neglected eventually what happens is if they get neglected for so long, they kind of throw a fit internally. They start to become restless and they create so much noise that we can't help but pay attention. So if we ignore these eternal drives, they'll become present in our dreams. So dream symbolism is, dreams and dreaming symbolism is one of my absolute favorite topics. And it's something that I am just perpetually intrigued and inspired by. And if you ignore these inner drives and these psychological needs, what will happen is they can become present within your dreams. And that's where uh, these kind of negative dreamscapes tend to happen. Haunted houses are a very good representation because the house represents the self. Um, if you're ever in a vehicle where you're not driving it and you're not controlling the direction, the vehicles represent your passage through life. And if you're not in control, it 
it reflects other people being in control of your direction. And uh, there are two concepts of the anima and the animus, which are our masculine and feminine representations of our psyche. And a lot of the time they can come up in dreams. If you're seeing a lot of the anima, it's because of a neglect of your animus and vice versa. So sometimes this is where you can have really awkward and sexually intimate dreams with people or things who you shouldn't be um, intimate with and this reflects a little bit of an internal imbalance between those different sides of your polarity the masculine and feminine the dark and the light the good and the evil this contrast is something that's very important to pay attention to and it's very important to allow the union and the harmony of these opposites and that space in between is who and what you really are that's your sense of self Young, Carl Jung said that by bringing attention to one's dreams, we can start to see patterns emerge. And these patterns are part of the psyche's web of all of the psychological factors that affect us. He called these patterns that would um, consistently show up the mandala of our subconscious or our psyche's manifestation. Another term for it is our soul's meandering through conscious life. And I really like that term of meandering because it feels like our soul or our spirit is kind of just tiptoeing its way through life and plucking about and trying to find the correct pathways for it to travel to really illuminate the inner desire and that inner light that we want to express to the world. These patterns um, in our dreams, these, these certain contents will begin to emerge, they'll then disappear, and they'll turn up again. And this can kind of re, or so this can create these reoccurring dreams. And Jung believed that if we paid attention, we can see these symbols change slowly but perceptively to reflect the movement through our soul's journey. All of these symbolic representations stem from what Jung would call the nuclear atom of our psychic system. And I really like that concept of the atom orbiting around the nucleus and the nucleus being yourself. Um, everything revolves around this center or this inner persona and it's something that's been recognized through a bunch of different cultures in history. The Greeks called the center the daemon. The Egyptians called it the ba-soul, which is the, uh, it's part of the merkaba, the ba-soul is that inner, inner sense of self. The Romans called it the genius, which was native and inherent to each individual. And the Manipura chakra is considered the sun of our body. So just as the sun is the center of our solar system, yourself is the center of your microcosmic solar system and it illuminates the way of your individual journey and will lead you back to wholeness or completeness. And one of the things that gets really interesting is when we start to look at symbolism, especially within Egyptian deities, a lot of these Egyptian deities, and especially the demigods of the humans who had as, uh, ascended and found enlightenment, were usually seen with a giant sun disk above their head. So the sun disk represented not only a very deep association with their internal sun and their sense of self, but also with the, the uh, solar sun, which was there where they believed the essence of consciousness or godhood stemmed from. And that's, uh, it's really interesting because a lot of very, very early religions like the Mithraism, Mithro, hmm, I can't pronounce that word, but the Mithraists and the early Babylonians and Assyrians had a lot of sun worship. 
And once we start to look at the sun as a representation of the individualized self, now suddenly this metaphor has more meaning because not only was it about uh, cultivating an awareness with the world around us, but also cultivating a deep connection to the worlds within us. So I want to ask you again, who are you? No, really, who are you? One of the things that I find a really good exercise is I like to feel my solar plexus because there are tons of nerve endings right in the middle of our solar plexus. And any center in your body where nerves collect, it's a very important part through our human energy field or our aura or our cosmic body. We have all of these different centers that respond to the world around us and respond to the world within us. So it's like if you've ever been winded or hit in your solar plexus, whenever you get a big hit in that center, it knocks the wind out of you. And if you've ever experienced that, it takes a while for you to regain your composure and come back into that center. And I really like that kind of concept because I relate it to what it's like when you have lost your connection with your center and connection with yourself. If you haven't cultivated a really deep and profound connection to that center, your body as a system is kind of perpetually feeling that winded quality. If you can't return to that safe, still space of yourself, you'll feel disoriented. You'll feel kind of knocked out of your flow. So it's a really, really important place in your body. And, um, I'm really familiar with this. I don't know why, but when I was growing up, I got hit in the solar plexus by bullies a lot. That used to kind of be the place. I don't know why, but that's where people would kind of stem from for me. So I've always kind of really connected with this concept of losing that sense of self. And when you lose that sense of self, everything feels distant. Everything feels like you're in a canoe without a paddle and you're just kind of drifting along. So I, I really, I find a lot of folks have a lot of a disconnection, a lot of blockages within their solar plexus. I feel that the solar plexus and the throat are two of the most common places where we have stuck energy and where we have a disconnection to our, our chakra systems. So our internal self is kind of where our fight flight or freeze response system stems from and this is where a lot of anxiety stems from our anxieties is a facet of that fight flight or freeze response system it's our self-preservation so if something around us is making us feel unsafe or making us feel unsecure that system are that part of our system that controls our self-regulation self-preservation begins to feel uncomfortable and that uncomfortability messages our body that something around us isn't right and that's where i feel a lot of anxiety stems from we are consistently being triggered by our environment there's so much improper noise and noise that's outside of the vibrational centers that human beings operate within and that nature and the world around us operates within a lot of the sounds of popular music and sounds on the radio and noise pollution from the cars and streets the buzzing of the lights people have to sit underneath fluorescent lights all day and the vibration that creates that fluorescent light is so far removed from the natural vibrations that we feel we our fight f and flight response gets triggered 
But the problem is we don't exist within the reality where we have the environment to um, interact with that fight or flight response. If we were in nature and pretend we were animals, if you are a gazelle and you're being hunted by the lion, that kind of magnetic sixth sense that something is unwrong starts to trigger and your body then responds by releasing cortisol and releasing adrenaline. And then the lion comes out of the bushes and it chases you and the gazelle begins its tunnel vision and the body sends information to the instinctual responses that are necessary to cultivate that safety. And so what the gazelle does is the, the gazelle runs. And because that adrenaline and cortisol has been released, it has more stamina, it has more speed, and it has the ability to escape that danger. And in doing so, because the body is being utilized, the blood system and the nervous system are being activated, the body naturally has a way to remove that cortisol and that adrenaline from the system. But the problem is, in our day and age, we're consistently being triggered, but we don't actually have an outlet for our body to regulate that hormonal release that happens when our body goes into these fight-or-flight modes. So this cortisol and this adrenaline kind of collects like these little pockets. It precipitates within our body. And in doing so, if we don't ever take the opportunity or we don't take the time to release these, these pockets of stress, they kind of sit around in our body. And then the next time we our fight-or-flight response gets triggered, suddenly these chemicals have a pool party to go to and now all of a sudden they hang out and now we've got a collection of all of these chemicals in our body that aren't regulated properly and that just compounds the response that we have our anxiety then becomes worse and worse and worse and worse and it grows and grows and grows and grows so the ways in which we can use our body to regulate these chemicals is you need to get it out of your system the Native Americans would use a process called shaking. And what they would do is they would just shake their body. You would just shake your shoulders and your feet and you would kind of move and you would just shake and you would shake and this would give your body an opportunity to release all of that, that cortisol and that adrenaline. There are a lot of other amazing ways to do so. Dancing is amazing. Exercise and meditation are great um, because it gives your body an opportunity to get the blood flowing and get the nervous system re-regulated so that your body can intuitively understand where all of these chemicals have been stored and it can kind of start to flush them out. When we take our breath and we turn it into sound by speaking or by chanting or by singing or by toning. This stimulates the nerve fibers in our body, and those nerve fibers then start vibrating, and that vibration will start to kind of target those areas where the cortisol and the adrenaline are being kept, and it will regulate them and start to flush them out of our body. So there are a lot of wonderful ways that we can use our our passions and we can use our creativity to not only express ourselves, but to help our body remove the cortisol and adrenaline that has been stored up in there. So I really want to talk about anxiety. Anxiety is rampant in our day and age, and I even get anxiety trying to talk about anxiety. And if that isn't a testament to um, how pervasive anxiety becomes, I'm not really sure what is. But one of the things I want to say right off the bat is you are not your anxiety. 
your anxiety is a response to your environment, which sometimes we're not able to escape. A lot of people call anxiety a disorder, and I don't agree with that. Now, I know that sounds bold, and just let me finish. I think anxiety is, it's an environmental response, and I know so many people who have anxiety. In fact, most people I know suffer from anxiety consistently on a daily basis. I can probably count on my hand the amount of people in my life who don't suffer from anxiety. And so I look at this as a system. And if the majority of people in this system are feeling anxiety and anxiety seems to be an appropriated response to our environment, then I don't believe it's the individual's fault for feeling anxiety. I believe it's the environment around the individuals that are creating the anxieties and that the anxiety is a natural response to something around us being so terribly broken that it encourages our body to hit that fight flight or response system. And as I was mentioning, we have so much light and sound pollution around us all the time. The electricity that's running through the walls is in a vibration that's not conducive to our natural well-being. Um, right now, we're stemming through so much political unrest. There's environmental destruction and fears for the actual future. There is inequality and oppression all over the place. So no wonder we're feeling anxious. How can you help but feel anxious, especially when we feel so powerless to be able to actually change and create consistent and progressive change to fix all of these scenarios in our environment that stimulate this anxiety? And I find that people have an awareness and a sensitivity to all of these conflicts that we can't resolve. They begin to internalize the hopelessness that we feel and that perpetuates the anxiety and that hopelessness and that fear um, triggers that fight or flight and that release of cortisol and that release of adrenaline. And in doing so, it just perpetually begins to compound itself. And so one of the things I'm just trying to say is give yourself a break. Give yourself some space, grace, and understanding. Move through this uncomfortability and allow yourself to feel it. Allow yourself to feel that anxiety and remember that it's not you. It's your body responding to a world around itself that's consistently triggering it. If you can cultivate a deep and safe center within yourself and if you can begin to cultivate a relationship with yourself, you will find that safe space of security within yourself and you can move forward from there. You can learn to differentiate what the feelings coming from you are and what feelings you're receiving externally through your environment. You can then begin to pinpoint the stressors in your life and you can learn to navigate through them. And this is where self-care and self-acceptance become very important. You can learn to be just, un you can learn to be enough. You can learn to be comfortable with who and what you are. And another thing that becomes very beneficial is meditation because our nervous system really, really craves cultivating silence and calmness. And this allows our nervous system to reset. And this is very important. And this is something that you deserve. Um, it's important to set your boundaries and to allow space for yourself to truly get to know yourself 
and develop a relationship with that self. Take the time out to honestly answer this question. Who are you? No, really. Who are you? So, the solar plexus, the Manipura chakra, called the inner sun. So this is what our, the energy surrounding our self, this is where it stems from. And so this is where the ego comes from. So the ego gets a bit of a bad rap, I think, in our day and age. Because the ego can tend to distort our intentions. It can kind of mask parts of ourselves that require attention and healing. And it can accidentally manipulate our drives so that we can take advantage of situations for our own self-improvement. But this self-improvement isn't always the most beneficial avenue. Sometimes it's more important to cultivate a harmony with the world around you as opposed to being so fixated on what you and yourself needs. So the ego Ego can be a very beautiful compass. It can be a navigational tool for you to align with, and it can help you align to what is right for you. But that being said, is the ego can also become a prison. How many of our drives are guised and dis... Sorry, uh, how many of our drives are disguised under intentions that aren't necessarily so wholesome? We live in a day and age where our image and our beauty is something we can leverage as a tool for our own cultivation of wealth. We see a lot of, I'm air quoting, you can't see it because you're not here, but I'm air quoting, influencers on social media who through the utilization of their sexuality can gather followers. And through this distortion of self-empowerment, we really get self-indulgence. And it becomes very dangerous because these the line between the two is razor sharp. It's very thin. And we can slip from self-acceptance into self-indulgence very easily. So this is some of the ways in which the ego can become a prison. And this is what caters to the thoughts of the what about me concept. So the intense desire for recognition and fame is not necessarily something that's bad, but it can be exploited and it can be disguised as something where we're searching for self-acceptance, but it gets distorted into self-indulgence. People, and, and as my background is playing in bands, you know, there was a time in my life where all I wanted to be was a famous rock star. I thought that my life would be adoring fans and making out with groupies in cities I've never been to before. And I would get home from the tour or I'd get home from the concert where people were telling me how great I was on the drums or how awesome our band was. And women would think I was attractive and they'd want to make out with me. And, and I realized that you, it's really easy to fall into these traps. It becomes very easy to allow yourself to cultivate the importance of how you were seen and not focusing on how you see yourself. And um, it became really difficult for me because I was surrounded with people who were more concerned about how they were perceived instead of how they were acting. So it becomes a really dicey scenario really quickly. And in our day and age, we champion 
people who put their beauty first, people who put their sexuality first, as opposed to the people who put compassion and the people who put understanding ahead of these things. And so this really then feeds back into this dog-eat-dog mentality. The dog-eat-dog mentality is coming from a place of lack and it's coming from a fear of scarcity. The concept is, I need to get what's mine because there's not enough to go around. And that mentality is derived from the ego and not from the self. The self understands that it can take exactly what it needs and there will be plenty to go around. But the ego aids the fear in tricking ourselves into believing that if we don't get what we need, there won't be enough for us. And then what happens? And we're afraid of that scarcity. We're afraid of that lack. We're afraid of not having enough. And so the true power of the solar plexus chakra is cultivating that safety and cultivating that space of connection with yourself and who and what you are and reminding yourself that you have everything you need. You are just enough exactly as you are and you are in a sense as perfect as you need to be. It's always a good thing to look at growth and it's always a good thing to try and be better. But unless that pursuit of growth is catered to compassion and grace and awareness for yourself and ease for the journey and difficulties you've been through, it won't be an honest victory once we cross that line. So the goal of the solar plexus chakra is to unify the self and all of the parts of that nucleic atom and that nucleic sense of the orbit of all of the parts orbiting around your inner sun and yourself and bringing them all into harmony. And in the, the Vedic philosophy, um, the metaphor for an individual moving through life is about raising the, the dormant kundalini serpent, which resides at the base of your spine and awakening it so it can go up the the central spine and the central nervous system to reach the crown of divinity at the very top chakra at the top of your head. And it's believed that the kundalini and the internal serpent of wisdom can't move through these steps if the chakras are blocking itself. So the goal is to rise through the ego to develop a cultivation and relationship with the self that is truly honest and it is truly accepting of what that self is and until we do so the growth from who and what we are into living in the heart will be blocked and hindered so the manapura chakra or the lotus flower that's associated with it has 10 petals and the 10 petals of the manapura lotus are ignorance thirst jealousy treachery shame fear disgust delusion foolishness and sadness and all of these qualities need to be overcome before your consciousness can be purified and brought into your heart so <clears throat> the ego is the one that tries to judge and compare but the self is the one that understands the ego tries to bring others down while the self uplifts the ego runs from pain and from truth, and the self accepts with grace and with compassion for the lessons and wisdom that are to be received. 
So, Jacob, you may ask, how do we grow through the ego into the true and authentic self? Well, well, folks, I think it's about developing a relationship with that self. I think it's about self-care. I think self-awareness and self-acceptance become the foundation that your inner growth and your inner illumination can move into the higher states of consciousness and the higher emotions and the higher states of being. If we're consistently stuck in lack of self-acceptance, we'll never really break through who and what we are into a really compassionate and heart-centered human being. We won't be able to express the love that we want and to share the love that we know we can give and the love that we know we deserve to receive if we're too busy combating our ego. So I want to talk about self-care because we don't understand sorry, most folks don't understand self-care in the ways in which it should be expressed. Self-care is not all about rose petal bath bombs and tubs of ice cream when you're feeling a little bad. Self-care is about confronting and accepting the less desirable qualities of ourselves. It's about looking into our shadow side and the parts of ourselves that are hidden. And this comes back to the repression of those internal desires, which Carl Jung was speaking of, and how those repressed desires can hang around in our subconscious mind and in our psyche for really long times. And unintentionally, we can be causing ourselves lots of damage by neglecting to look within and embracing those less desirable and those less mm, understandable sides of ourselves. I think in a day and age where we are consistently told how we should behave and how we should act and what a proper man and a proper woman should be, um, we very easily lose our grip on what our true and authentic nature really should be. And your form of self-care is very important, but... I think people get very confused. We think that self-care is just consistently piling on positivity on top of negative feelings and assuming that will do the work. But if we're not actually looking at these negative qualities of ourselves, we're burying them in the garden of our subconscious. And that's where things can begin to fester and things can begin to rot. And from that rot, the weeds can bloom and those weeds can then start to make their way into the other facets of your life that were performing healthy and they were being very regulated by your actions and your cultivation of your own inner peace. And these weeds can just spread and spread and spread. And that to me is truly what self-care is about. I mean, take your baths, please, by all means, light some candles, pour yourself a delicious glass of wine, celebrate and honor your body. And, you know, warm baths and heat are really good for your parasympathetic nervous system. And that's what can regulate ourselves from hyperexcitation back into a baseline of comfort and ease. Confronting these less desirable sides of ourselves and loving them is really important. We need to find a way to bring our shadow side back to the light of that inner sun. 
It's about sitting with uncomfortable feelings and confronting them. It's about standing up to ourselves and showing up for ourselves. Anxiety can be a very wonderful inner compass for you to understand scenarios that don't fit your authentic self. But that being said, if you're willing to allow that uncomfortability to win and you don't rise up and confront those uncomfortable states of your being, they will continue to be overbearing. You need to dig into the inner reserves of strength. You need to show yourself you're willing to show up for yourself even when you won't feel comfortably or sorry, perfectly comfortable doing it. I think another really important facet of self-love is the understanding of... So I always have... I have this concept. I call it the pendulum swing. And the pendulum swing is the space in between two different sides of polarity. So with this specific pendulum swing, we have two sides of self-care. So on one side of self-care, we have being selfless, and that's where you're giving your time to others and you're putting other people's needs first. And on the other side, we have being selfish, where you are taking care of yourself. Your needs are the ones that take precedent. And I think selfishness gets another really bad rap. Surprisingly, it's another facet of ego, so no wonder it's misunderstood. But being selfish is not a bad thing in its own right. It's about a mediation. It's about a balance in between those two conflict, not conflicting, but those two opposite polarities. Being too much of any one thing is never a positive direction. Bringing about a balance and a harmony of all of the different sides of yourself is the true key to self-awareness and to self-growth. So sometimes it might be more beneficial for you to be selfish other times it might be beneficial for you to be selfless, but if you're too selfish, you will create negative imbalances with yourself, and the same thing with being too selfless. This is where boundaries come into play. I want to say that again. Boundaries, everybody! Boundaries are so important. For all the empaths and the healers and the people pleasers, I really hope you listen to this because boundaries are so, so important. People pleasers, guess what? You're people too. If you're spending all of your time pleasing other people, you're missing the point. You need to please yourself in whatever way that may be. You need to understand what you need, what your fundamental wills and will nots are. You need to listen to your intuition about other people. I feel that most empaths and most people who are sensitive tend to see the best in people and they tend to see who someone really is in their true and authentic self. But the problem is we allow the sight of the inner nature of someone else to overshadow the actual actions that they are taking. It's wonderful for you to want to see the best and to see the most lovable qualities in people. But if those same people aren't acting out of that space, you need to pay just as much attention to those actual actions. This is where your intuition becomes really important. Um, a lot of people say, I have a lot of friends who get taken advantage of often. 
And they always tell me they never expected that person to do that thing to them. And what I recommend for my friends who this go who go through this is try and develop a connection with your inner intuition and that gut feeling. That gut feeling will tell you who that person is to you. And I feel like what happens is we have a tendency to lose our connection with that voice. That voice inside us saying, hey, but wait, that doesn't add up. Or that part inside of us that ignores the red flags. It's just really important to honor yourself and honor the wisdom that is happening within you. If you don't honor yourself, how can you expect other people's to? Giving and receiving love is important. I find a lot of people with solar plexus chakra imbalances tend to be givers. They tend to give acceptance, give love, give understanding to other people, but they won't allow that same those same qualities to be received. And giving and receiving are another side of the pendulum swing. It's really important to cultivate a balance between both of those. If you let your needs go unchecked, they will boil over on the stovetop of your subconscious mind and they'll just sit there steaming and stemming without you paying attention to what's really necessary. And in doing so, you lose that connection with yourself and you lose the awareness that you need so you can really listen to yourself, so you can really set those clear boundaries. This is kind of what leads into toxic situations. And toxic situations are not always from bad people. If you have a toxic relationship with someone, it doesn't mean either of you are bad people. I think we tend to assume that toxic people are bad people and that bad people are the only reason why we can have toxic scenarios. And you look at your friends and you look at yourself and you go, but we're good people. We can't be a toxic relationship because we're good people. But that's not always the case. Toxic scenarios are scenarios in which you have outgrown distracting habits and relationships that don't bring out the best in you. These situations and these relationships that don't bring out the best of who and what you really are are what becomes toxic. And a toxic scenario can develop over time. We all have our own paths and we all have our own journeys that we grow through. And in doing so, we go through different phases in our lives where we had certain coping mechanisms or certain responses to external situations that made sense at the time. And our ego and our inner critic has developed all of these different um, kind of walls to keep out things that have hurt us in the past. And so that's what our inner critic does is it's about self-preservation. That's what our ego is trying to do. It's about self-preservation. But when you get to a stage in your own development where you have outgrown old patterns of yourself and you're moving into new states of being and new paradigms of understanding who you are and expressing who that is, if other people's growth isn't in line with your growth, suddenly you will start to contrast each other. And this is where childhood friends can become very toxic. Some people who you've loved for years and years and years can be indulging in behavior and indulging in 
scenarios that no longer bring out the best in you. And a lot of the time this is with alcohol or drug abuse, which, you know, I think the disillusionment of the senses has its time and place. But if it's used for a coping mechanism or if it's used for an opportunity to escape the inner dialogue that is calling out to be listened to, it becomes very harmful. And if people in your life are not honoring your space, if they're not honoring your boundaries, if they're not honoring your love and your light and your personal growth, that's when it becomes toxic. And it doesn't necessarily mean that this person is trying to hurt you. It means they lack the understanding and the selfless acceptance that's necessary for you to continue growing. So if someone comes around with pruning shears and cuts you off as you're growing, that becomes toxic. The kind of relationships you want to cultivate in your life are the people who bring the watering cans and the fertilizer to help you grow. And the unfortunate side of this is there become times in our lives where we'll have to leave certain scenarios where people you love and care about aren't catering to what you know is best for you. And so that's what boundaries become. Boundaries become your self showing you that you aren't willing to stand for this kind of mistreatment. You're not willing to stand for the lack of understanding you're receiving. You aren't willing to be around people who won't treat themselves with the kind of love that you need in your life. And it becomes really hard because now we're tugging on our heartstrings. Now it means distancing ourselves from the people who brought us joy and maybe even helped us define ourselves and define who and what we are as we were growing about our journey. What you stand for shows others how to treat you. How you treat yourself sets the stage for how others learn to treat you and how you love yourself shows others how you deserve to be loved. So I'm going to take a little bit of a break here, and uh, I'll be right back with you folks. If you uh, don't join me again this evening, then I can't wait to uh, see you next time. So thanks so much again for joining in for part one of our Solar Plexus episode of Freaky Fridays. Please feel free to send me an email with any comments, concerns, ideas, insights, you can uh, get a hold of me through jacobpastorfield at gmail.com. You can send an email to kumbayama at gmail.com. Or if you'd like, follow my Facebook page, Kumbayama. And that's the kind of uh, headquarters for my sound healing practice. So I hope you folks cultivate a loving relationship with yourself. I hope you take a new approach to what self-care means, and I hope you really recognize the beauty that stems from your unique individuality, and I hope you really learn to honor yourself. Thanks so much, folks. For those returning in a moment, I'll see you soon. For those returning next time, we'll see you then. Bye for now. <laughs>